running after us. You know what that means? It means that even when we're running, we're not going to outrun God's goodness. Turn to uh, Colossians 2 this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to jump into our jump into our passage today. Father, we come this morning, God, it's just an incredible uh, passage of, of instruction and impact and encouragement and warning and, Lord, a host of things that happen in this text that can help us as believers this morning. God, I pray you use it this morning to, to do all those things, to encourage us and warn us and change us. We pray all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in uh, Colossians 2, 16 through 23 this morning. And before we really get into the meat of the sermon, I, I want to give a little bit of a vocabulary lesson. And I figure like that, we did a grammar lesson this last week, so we might as well do a vocabulary lesson this week. Don't worry, there will be no math lessons coming, I promise you that, um, because I don't like math, and uh, I'm not good at it. Um, I say that, and next week I'll figure out a way to do a math lesson. Um, I want to define some terms, because um, a lot of time when I, there's a, a lot of time in the reason for breakdown in communication is, have you ever heard the, the phrase, we're using the same words but different dictionaries, right? Um, I want to make sure there's some, there's some, that some definitions, some terms that when I say these words, you know what I mean or you know what the text means because a couple of these words are actually in the text. One of them is in the text. Because um, I think this is a text that can free us from some bondage if we understand the implications of what Paul is teaching here. And I want to try and um, to help us with this. And so the first term I want to define is legalism. Now, legalism is not in the passage as a word, but the whole text is about legalism. And so if I want you, to, I want to make sure you at least have an understanding of what legalism is. So I've got it on the, on the overhead, um, if that's working. Legalism. Ben, you see that slide for me, bud? Maybe, maybe not. There it is. External performance over internal transformation. Places undue emphasis on the outward appearance and conformity to religious practice. It equates those with genuine spiritual growth. Legalists also believe that whatever external standard they have set is the standard that everyone needs to live up to. So they put it on themselves and they put it on everybody else. The next one's a word Paul actually is going to use several times in the text in Colossians, and that word is asceticism. Asceticism is a lifestyle or practice that involves strict self-discipline and self-denial for religious and spiritual purposes. Uh, uh, monks that, that go into these, uh, these convents and spend their entire life wearing brown robes and eating bread and water and praying all day, that's, that would be extreme asceticism. Um, and it, it, asceticism involves voluntarily giving up certain pleasures, comforts, and material possessions in order to, to demonstrate devotion to a higher power. And most of the time, with asceticism comes a form of legalism um, because the ascetics uh, will consider themselves to be more spiritual than everybody else because of what they've given up. And then the third one is um, 
is not in this text, but I want to bring it up for one particular reason. It's the word antinomianism, which is which means anti-law, against the law, no law. It's not a good thing. It's actually probably the extreme uh, opposite. If legalism's extreme right, antinomianism will be extreme left. Antinomianism is when someone thinks that their spiritual beliefs or faith make them exempt from following any laws or moral codes. And the only reason I bring this one up is because as we look at this text, I want to be clear that I'm not an antinomian. I'm going to sound a little antinomian this morning, but I'm not one. And we'll, we're going to look at some things next week and then the week after to talk through those a little more. Um, uh, there are laws of God that we need to follow. So with that said, let's read in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, do not let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is not from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to the human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." Now, I titled this sermon this morning, Three Things We Don't Need and One We Do. So let's look at the first thing we don't need from this text. We don't need a rule. That's what Paul is saying here. There are folks who are so focused on following religious rules to the letter that they actually end up missing the whole point of Christianity. They miss the big picture. Imagine someone who spends so much time looking at the travel guide and the details that they actually don't pay attention to the destination that they're actually traveling to. That's what's happening here. We'll see that in movies sometimes, and it's kind of they use it kind of as a humorous thing. You've always got the one dad who's telling everybody, all, they're reading the history of the building standing in front of them, but they never actually look at the building, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, th- these individuals think that by strictly adhering to religious do's and don'ts, that they're somehow more devout. It's as if they believe that the less joy they have and the less freedom they have in their lives, the more spiritual they are, thinking that the more they sacrifice, the more spiritual they're going to become. But Paul's like, Paul says, no. Correct adherence to a rule is not a test of spirituality. Rules are also not a means to winning God to your side. And that's what, this, that's what he's addressing here in the first part of this text. Some of the best legalist rule followers I know are some of the meanest, most miserable people I've ever met in my life. And y'all probably have somebody popped in your mind as I'm describing this. And if you don't, it might be you, right? That's, what, that's what we're supposed to. That's, that's, that's kind of the rule there, right? <laughs> I don't know who he's talking about. Uh, well, mm, all right, so I'm not saying that, but maybe. All right, so because here, here's what happens. I, I think 
when it becomes about the rules, we remove the joy and freedom of following Christ and we turn it into a chore, a task, a job. But what Paul says really matters in the Christian life is a genuine connection to the head, to Christ, embracing the changes that come from the internal through faith through the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about this dynamic living relationship with Christ that brings joy, it brings change, it brings energy to the community, to the body of Christ. So in essence, Paul is saying that true Christianity is about being transformed by God's grace into a community that reflects that bond with Christ. It's not about who can follow the most rules. If that's all your faith is, you're like a car with no engine. You may look great on the outside, but you can't go anywhere. And you know what happens to cars with no engines? Y'all have seen them on the side of the road with grass growing up and weeds in them, and they eventually rust. And if somebody doesn't go by and do something with them, they just end up in the junkyard at some point. Verse 16, Paul says, let no one, therefore, right, tied to last week's sermon, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now look, this gives us some insight into the false teaching happening in, in this church in, in uh, Colossae. The entire passage, this particular section seems to point to a blend of of Jewish and pagan rules, but the, the first part, 16 and 17, seems to point more towards Jewish people trying to drag ceremonial law of the Old Covenant over into the New Covenant. And they've even added to it. They've, they've added extra to it because in the Old Testament, the, there were prohibitions on food, but there were never any prohibition on, on drink, which in the Colossians passage is a reference to wine or strong drink. So they've even added to it. So you got this list of foods and don't touch anything, anything else to drink, which was not part of the Old Testament ceremonial law. So, so see, the issue is that this issue of shadow and substance is really important because it gives us clear insight to what's happening. I, I think it might be important to take a quick detour and talk about the law, Okay. Because when Scripture uses the word law, it actually refers to the law in three different ways. And I want to talk about those three ways really quick. And just again, we're kind of defining some terms here. These are summarized really nicely in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So let's look at these three categories of the law. The first is the moral law. Um, as we, uh, when, when we talk about the, the law given through Moses, we're referring to the moral law. This is on the slides, Ben. Um, it's not just a set of rules. It's ingrained in the very fabric of creation. God wrote it on our hearts. It was later summarized in the Ten Commandments. And this law shows what it means to live righteously in God's eyes. It's always been there even before there was a formal agreement of the law made with Israel. This is what Paul was referencing in, in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and specifically uh, in chapter 5. The second category, we have the ceremonial laws given to Israel. Now, these laws are specific to the covenant made with Israel, and they served as a symbolic foreshadowing to the Messiah who's coming. They include commands about worship practices, there were moral implications to these ceremonial laws. However, with the arrival of Christ, the laws were fulfilled, and those ceremonial laws became obsolete, and they included things like 
priesthood, sacrifices, special feast days, dietary restrictions, and, and they played an important role in Israel's part of teaching about the atonement and reconciliation and sanctification in the Old Testament. And an interesting point that sheds light on this, you might be familiar with this story, but in Acts 10, Peter has a vision, he has a dream of a sheet containing animals coming down. And if you know, there was this whole host of animals that, that, uh, and, and rules for, for what animals Jewish people could eat and which ones they could not eat and how they had to be served and prepared and all these things. And Peter has a vision of these, these animals coming down, this, this sheet full of animals that's the whole list of things that he can't eat as a Jewish man. And is told, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he goes, I, I, I can't do that. Those are unclean. And God tells Peter in this dream, do not call anything unclean that I've made clean. And this experience challenged Peter's understanding of ceremonial law and their application to the Gentiles. But it also signifies a shift of inclusivity and demonstrated that God's grace extends beyond the boundaries of ceremonial restrictions. So the ceremonial law is no longer needed because Christ is here. And it also points to not just food, it also points to Gentiles being part of the family of God and those things. And then the third category would be the civil or judicial laws. Now these laws governed the nation of Israel, much like our laws, our constitution, and some things like that govern us here in America. Um, not exactly the same uh, because the, uh, the religion of the Jews and the judicial law of the Jews was blended together. Um, but things like inheritance and resolving disputes and how society is governed and all those things came up in these civil and judicial laws. But it's important to note that these laws were specifically meant for the nation of Israel under the old covenant. And once that covenant came to end, these laws ceased to be binding on any other geopolitical entity as civil laws. In fact, in Galatians 3, it talks about the purpose of the law. It states that the law served as a guardian until Christ came, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And then Paul called this the perfect coming in 1 Corinthians and this is understood to mean that the civil law as part of the Mosaic Covenant was temporary provision until the time of Christ. And for those interested or those who even know what I'm talking about, this is why I disagree with theonomy that's being pushed right now under the name of Christian nationalism. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, right? Don't even go look it up. It'll just rot your brain like the rest of us. All right, so, but in Colossians, these young believers are being told, no, you need to follow these laws. You'll not reach spiritual maturity, spiritual high, whatever. You're going to actually be excluded from the people of God. And I thought, how does this, you know, I can see how it's happening in Colossians. What, what happens today? Do we still do this? And I think so. I think if you could ask yourself the question, if you judge someone's salvation based on a list of rules, you're doing the same thing that the people in Colossians were doing to these young believers. So this issue of shadow and substance, I, I, I came up with an analogy, a story. I don't know if it's a good one or not. You know, 
if it connects, great. I, some of these times, you're, sometimes when you're preaching, Jim, we're just guessing, hoping it works, right? Think of it like this. There's a little village in the woods that is far away from the city, right? And they, and they have heard of something called a clock, but they don't have any clocks in their, in their, their village, no watches. They've been using sundials to keep time since sundials were invented. And for years, that's as imprecise as they were. That's what they used, and they didn't even work when the sun, uh, when it was cloudy or at night. But despite the limitations, it was a good tool. It helped them tell time, even the, you know, within reason. They could get within, you know, probably 10, 15 minutes of what time it was for the most part. And, it, and it, so it had, some, it had value for them. But then one day... This, this man shows up with plans to build a clock tower in the town. It's going to tell the precise time. It doesn't matter if it's raining or not. It doesn't matter if it's day or night. Um, it, 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 it will tell them the time. But as the clock tower is being built, there's a few villagers that are skeptical. Look, the sundial was good enough for my mom and dad. It's good enough for me. That was their attitude. And, and so... This sundial had served them, and, and, and they're like, no, it, I don't see any need for change. The sundial's fine. I don't need to know if it's exactly 1004. 1004-ish is good enough, which some people still live that way. I don't know how, but, you know, still works for them. All right, so when the clock tower is completed, the architect has this big grand opening. He's climbed to the top. He's going to reveal this magnificent clock with a big hand. It's going to point to the hours and the minutes and explains, look, this is going to be the true and proper way to tell precise time. Look up to that clock and you'll know exactly what time it is. And then he points to the sundial and he says, the sundial had its purpose, but those days are over. You don't need sundials anymore. It, it, it served its purpose for its time. It gave you a way to gauge time. But now with this clock, you're going to get real precise measurement. And just like the sundial shadow points towards time, the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were shadows pointing towards Christ. And now that he's here, we don't rely on shadows. We rely on the, the, the substance. We rely on what Ephesians calls the law of Christ. We don't need a rule. We also, number two, we don't need a vision. 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a, with a growth that is from God. So these false teachers apparently had a preoccupation with, with rules and spiritual beings and visions, and they lost contact with the only effective source of spiritual growth, which was actually in Christ. But now this section isn't about do's and don'ts as much as it is about Christ not being sufficient. They needed, here's, here's what they, they needed, they were looking for, this group. They needed something more. They needed something bigger. They needed something better. They needed just more. Have y'all ever heard Christians talk about, I just need more? They've got angels over here, and they got visions over there, and they got special secret knowledge over here, and not much Jesus anywhere. 
And they'll proudly tell you how humble they are by everything that's happening to them as they get these visions and worship these angels and get these special secret knowledge. And Paul warns, he says, don't be deceived by those who flaunt their holier-than-thou attitude and put on this grand display of piety, claiming that they've got some kind of insider's ticket to spiritual enlightenment. They've got sacred secrets that the rest of us don't have access to. And look, it, it's easy to get taken in by people like this, especially if you're drawn to the allure of being part of an exclusive circle. But Paul says don't buy into it because beneath all the fanfare of humility and angel worship and talk of insight and talk of visions and talk of the super spiritual, they're really just blowing hot air. It's driven by ego it's disconnected from the real source of life and wisdom. And real humility is a gem that Christians value. And y'all know that humble people don't know they're humble, right? That's how I know I'm not humble. All I know is I'm more humble than I used to be. Right? Something to be proud of. <laughs> Look, it was common in this time for it, this angel thing, this angel worship. It's, it's really hard to determine in this text if they were talking about like literal angel worship of, of prayers and sacrifices and praises or if it was something else. It's hard to say because honestly, Jewish people and the pagan uh, religions in Colossae had some deep, extensive views on angels, and and uh, we 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 I did a series on angels a couple of years ago, and and even talked about this with the Jewish people. It, it, it looks like what's happening here is a blend of the two. It was common place for the local people to call upon angels for things like protection and assistance in business endeavors and destroying my enemies and cursing people or removing curses and, and those kinds of things. And Paul says, no, that's not what's needed for spirituality. What is needed is to focus on the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of his work and salvation and spiritual growth through that. And so if we redirect the focus towards Christ, Paul says it's going to dismantle this influence and this reliance on these angelic powers and Point believers towards the source of power. And these people need to see, but these, these people need to see themselves as part of some secret society. They, they need to see themselves as having some kind of special spiritual knowledge, something more. Jesus is not enough. It's always seeking the more. And, and that's how churches get in so much trouble in their worship services of what scripture's given us is not enough. So we got to make it bigger and better and one-up ourselves to the point where we end up, you'll see churches do just insane things and call it spirituality because the ordinary means of grace is just not enough for them. But I also see this same attitude in a different group. I've actually done this. Not, not worship angels and visions, uh, but I've actually done it with the Bible. I've walked around puffed up, 
theologically patting myself on the back for how much Bible I knew and how much better I was than other Christians because I knew more than they did. I knew things they didn't know and they just needed to wake up and see the truth. And I'm not talking about getting theology right. It's important to get theology right. I'm talking about an arrogant attitude towards those who disagree who actually might just need more time and a little bit more patience and a little bit more instruction to get to the same conclusions you've reached. But there is no patience. There is no grace. There is no time. And I, will, I am shocked at how arrogant people and how graceless some people can be who claim to believe the doctrines of grace. And I'm like, it's about grace. Why are you such a jerk? You're not more spiritual because you know more. Too much is given, much is required. And David Wall talks about the danger of this attitude. Here's, here's what he says. He, and he, I mean, he's like, he goes hard. Many Christian groups want to draw a circle of acceptability tied around themselves and reject others because of some failure to conform to their narrow vision of the truth. They will only tolerate or accept religious clones. They claim the high ground of exceptional piety or exemplary orthodoxy from which to lob a barrage of criticism against others who claim the name of Christian. And when I read that, I thought, ouch. I don't know if I'm that now, but I know I was that in the past. I can give you examples of it. I could put you on the phone with some people that don't go to church here anymore, and you read that to them and go, oh, yeah, that's why I left. Getting theology and practice right is important, but the problem is we can worship theology, but not be worshiping Jesus. We can worship rules. We can worship theological constructions more than we worship Christ. And this process, the result is ugly, it's smug, it's arrogant, and it just creates division. It doesn't bring reconciliation. There's no discipleship involved in that. And I think, I think David Wall's right when he says that Christians have one social marker, and that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would add another social marker. Uh, I would say behavior in accordance with faith is a social marker. There, there are some things, because I, you can claim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live like the devil. You know, you can, you can verbally assent, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, and I'm going to go march in a pride parade this week. And so... Those who have been qualified by baptism, and I don't mean baptism saves. I just mean that's the sign that we have, we verbally, I mean physically said we are part of this. Christ's sacrificial death. We cannot be disqualified just because some hyper-spiritual self-appointed umpire with some prejudices says you're disqualified. That's actually not the role of you as an individual. That's the role of the church. That's actually what Matthew 18 is about. Look, Paul had some crazy spiritual experiences, and you know, he wouldn't even talk about them. 
He didn't brag on them. He, didn't, he, he, he actually downplayed them and thought of his own limitations as a reminder to not get puffed up. He said, look, when it came to being a Jew, I was the Jew of Jews. I had done it all. I kept the law. I had read all the stuff. I had reached the heights. And I counted all dung for the all-surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. He emphasized staying connected to Jesus, stay connected to the head. Imagine the body and the head in a literal sense, and a body parts are acting on its own. And if you ignore the signals from the brain, things can go haywire. If you don't think so, put a match under your hand, and your brain's telling you, what are you doing? And you have to fight. It's a fight to do that. You have to fight with your hand and your brain to burn yourself. If you're not connected to the body, that's what's going to happen. All right, the last thing we don't need, we don't need religion. Verse 20. If with Christ you died of the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to the human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Look, people get caught up in obsessing over human-made rules and teachings, and they draw this circle of acceptability. They create an environment where only like-minded people are tolerated and accepted and all these things. But let me tell you this. That's not the path we should be following as believers. It's a dead-end road that leads to division and self-righteousness. And our focus should, be, should not be on strict adherence to external rules and regulations that are not part of what God has called us to as New Testament, New Covenant believers. We should recognize the commands and the teachings of Christ as encompassing far more important matters. So, so think about it like this. It probably will look impressive to your friends to have this checklist of do's and don'ts that externally make you look like a super Christian. It will give the illusion of spirituality. It will give the illusion of being detached from worldly pleasures. But ask yourself this, does it truly bring you closer to God? And if you want to know how, in the last couple of years, so many people, Christian leaders, pastors, thought guys, fell into sin, and from the external, they looked like the people we would want to follow. This is how. This is how that happens. The list in the last, and I'm not talking about the fringy, weird people out there on the TBN crowd. I'm talking about the people that you sought out on their podcasts and their videos and bought their books. It scares me, to be honest with you. It scares me. I mean, these are the guys that I thought would end well, and they are not ending well. 
and the list keeps getting longer. And it terrifies me. I'm like, dude, I do not want to end. Scott, I don't want to end that way. Paul said, all of these things make zero difference in fighting the indulgences of the flesh. You know why? Because it doesn't address the issue. The issue is not the external. The issue is the heart. And if you're not dealing with the heart, you're not dealing with the problem. It doesn't make an inner, a difference in the inner struggle with sin. It doesn't give joy. It doesn't give freedom in Christ. It just doesn't. And the truth is, we can become so engrossed in the rules and the theological constructs that we forget to worship Christ himself as the source of our joy and our freedom and the overcoming of sin and all those things. Because it's not about establishing our own righteousness through eternal pra external practices. It's about surrendering ourselves to Christ and living out through faith the actions that come from the internal changes that happen to us on the inside. I don't think Paul could have had a stronger dismissal of this attitude or practice than he did in, in this passage in Colossians. He warned the Colossian church of these dangers. And I want to summarize. I'm, I'm going to go through, some, I'm going to bullet point this. I'm going to summarize real quick these dangers of these false teachings. Here's what Paul said happens. If, if you follow what this group was being told in Colossians, here's the outcome. It judges and disqualifies people based on human standards. It creates division and exclusion. It leads to religious tyranny. It demands allegiance to supernatural powers and rules instead of Christ. It feeds human pride and arrogance. It promotes mystical experiences, rituals, and practices as a means to spiritual superiority. It places excessive importance on the temporal and perishable things. It neglects the internal, the, the eternal. It substitutes a personal relationship with Christ for a rigid code of conduct and strict doctrines and devotions to institutions. It isolates individuals from the body, and in doing so, it hinders their fellowship and their growth in community. It claims to offer superior wisdom centered on self-fulfillment rather than surrendering to God and serving others. It undermines, this was a huge one for me, it undermines the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, suggesting that we need more extra experiences, spiritual agents, or ritualistic observances. And it promotes a self-made religion which rejects the completeness of Christ's accomplishment on our behalf. Is that how you want to live? There's no joy in that. And I promise you, there is joy in following Jesus. That's not the kind of Christian I want to be. The reality is these false teachers, they offered counterfeit spirituality and they undermined the whole message that Christ came to save. He came to atone. He came to free us from what could not be accomplished in the Old Covenant. That's what Hebrews says the Old Covenant pointed to. It just, the law is just pointed to the fact that you can't keep the law. It's not possible. True faith and love and unity is found in genuine relationship with Jesus. And this Colossians passage says also, also participation within a body of believers. Now, what's the one thing we need? It's easy. It's the Sunday school answer. We need Jesus. 
We need the law of Christ. Romans 8. There is, so now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Listen, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So the law wasn't the problem. We were the problem. So God did what the law couldn't do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And our identity as Christians is tied to that and nothing else. Not one rule, not one regulation. It's tied to our faith in Jesus Christ and His accomplished work on the cross. It's not about conforming to external standards. It's about transformation that happens from within and manifests itself in the external. It's literally the flip of legalism, which says the external will transform the internal. Christianity, true Christianity, the gospel says no, the internal will transform the external. So don't be deceived by it. Don't be deceived. Don't be lured by the rules. Man, if I don't feel spiritual right now, so if I'll just check these boxes, maybe I'll feel more spiritual. No. No. Just get more in touch with Jesus. Focus on Him. Live out your faith through Him. You know how I know this is true? Because it's the next thing Paul told us to do in, verse, in chapter 3. Don't look over there. That's, 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 that's next week. But that's what he says. He tells us what to do. He tells us what not to do at the end of 2. Not next week because I'm going to sidetrack. I'm going to actually do a... a, a I'm going to do a sermon on uh, Christian liberty next week tied to Colossians, but I'm going to do it from Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. But then two weeks, we're going to look at three and the how-to, how, how, to, how to do what he told us to do. And you know what the answer is? Yeah, just focus on Jesus. <laughs> That's literally what he says. Y'all can look ahead. It's worth it. Look ahead. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above. There's many, many different ways we're given that same encouragement in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to do. And actually, that worship team, y'all go ahead and come on up. Y'all know that's the key purpose of communion. It, and it's really why we do it every week. This is a moment, a tangible, touchable, tasteable moment to set your mind on things above. That's what's happening when we take communion. We're able to set our mind on the work of Christ 
what he did. We're able to set our mind on that how that work has manifested itself in our lives. And so as we partake in communion today, that's what I would encourage you to do. Set your mind on Christ, the work of Christ on the cross. Celebrate that today. Take a few moments. This is one of those moments where we're given warnings. Don't take this in an unworthy manner. And we've talked off and on about what that means. But I can tell you one thing it means is if you've got somebody you need to go apologize to, go do it. If you've got a sin you need to repent of, do it. Do it now. If you don't even know, ask God, hey, do I have anything I need to repent of at this moment? You might find something. But either way, take a moment of meditation and prayer as the worship team sings this. And if you're with us today and you're a baptized believer, we encourage you to take in this with us. And while they sing, come grab the elements. And then afterwards, we'll all partake in this together. Amen.